Scotch tape over here. What if you turned it up a little bit? So does that work? No, not really. But it's not loud enough. This should be on. Is it on? Can you hear? Maria, can you hear? Can you hear me back there? Now that's a little better. Whoa. So when is it too much? Is this too much? No. Is this good? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is supposed to be Sharon Salzberg and... Uh, I think she'll show up. That was the last we talked. We spoke for... I, I knew she was here Monday night. How many people were here Monday night to hear her? That's great. Well, but we, we had a lot of correspondence back and forth yesterday. Uh, well, t texting back and forth. And I said, it's not Tuesday. It's Wednesday. Come Wednesday. Come Wednesday, I said, I've, I've prepared a Dharma talk, but come early and you'll sit right next to me and I'll introduce you and everybody who hasn't met with you will get to meet you and um, you'll get to give the instructions, do them however way you want to. We'll have that and then I'll teach whatever I'm going to teach and you can stay there and comment on it. And uh, the last text I had back and forth from her this morning was, I hope I'll be there on time. So that's not quite, she's not quite here on time. But I didn't hear I'm not coming, so uh, I think she'll come. How many people are here who have never been at Spirit Rock before? Never been at Spirit Rock before? Wow. What's your first name? Why don't you stand up and say the first name? <laughs> Jessica? And where do you live, Jessica? I'm glad that you came. That's a long ride. Welcome. And what's your name? So people can see you. So three Musar buddies. Thank you very much, Judy, because I'm going to tell everybody what a Musar buddy is. Musar is, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it's a form of meditation that is very akin to paramita practice in Buddhist meditation. It's said that in the 
many lifetimes or before in any event, however they occurred, before the enlightenment of uh, Siddhartha Gautama in the lifetime in which he was acknowledged to be the Buddha, the one who awakened, it was said that he had spent a long time in the literature, in the folk literature, it says he spent lifetimes. But anyway, the gist of it is that he spent a lot of time perfecting the virtues of the heart, perfecting uh, morality and uh, truthfulness and generosity and wisdom and loving kindness and definitely patience and uh, definitely energy and uh, determination, definitely. So there's a whole list. Ah, there she is, da-da-da. Let's give applause, really. Good morning, sweetheart. Come up here. I just finished giving a summary of where we were on the texting back and forth. And... Yeah, and I said the last text said I might not be on time, but you are pretty much. I can't stand up because I'm all plugged into no, this don't stuff. Stand up. <laughs> there you go. Hello. Lovely to see you. Great to see you. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. delighted to see you. We didn't see each other in a long time. I know. Okay. So where we are? First of all, this is my friend and. Uh, <laughs> this is my my longtime friend, my teacher, my introduction to meta meditation. This is Sharon Salzberg. She uh, lives on the East Coast. She lives in New York City. We met in Barry, Massachusetts, in 1985, when or 86. What it was the year you went to Burma? 85. So it was 86. Uh, she went to Burma along with uh, some other colleagues and learned. Uh, Mind, um, um, metta meditation, loving kindness meditation from Upandita, no? Yeah. Upandita. And uh, they practice very hard. You know how you hear stories sometimes that somebody in the Zen tradition, particularly, they uh, learn something, they have some big it, breakthrough insight, and then they take 20 years consolidating their insight before they begin to. T- teach. <laughs> anyway, Sharon and Joseph went to study with Upandita. Then she came back and started to teach. And uh, I went uh, back east to spend some weeks. Actually, it was not even a meta retreat. It was a regular mindfulness retreat. And, and it, Because how do people know what you're doing? Everybody is sitting there quietly. So I was sitting quietly and beginning to work with loving-kindness phrases as a meditation, and everybody was doing whatever they were doing. But it was my introduction, and I was very, very serious. And uh, in the several weeks that I spent, I really thought this is the practice I need. And it remains with a whole long story, and maybe not so much what I want to talk about today, but one of the things that I hope gets to be established in my lifetime, so there's not so much time left, is that there really isn't a difference between mindfulness and uh, metta. So then people say, oh, I do mindfulness, I don't like metta. Or I do metta, but I can't do mindfulness. That's a, it really doesn't make sense to me. You cannot be mindfully awake in the moment, poised to receive 
the next moment with balance and poise and intense interest, unless your mind is kindly disposed to it, unless there's an element of cordiality in it. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend is a meditation that really um, embodies that understanding. So I came back from there and began teaching uh, on my own at that point. It was about 1985 that I began to teach. And more and more it seems to me that they are... The same teach. It's the same teaching. It's the same uh, philosophy. It's the same understanding of uh, freedom and nirvana uh, that that is fundamental to Buddhism and a different technique. And uh, so that's what that's that's what I sometimes say. I want to say on my tombstone, mindfulness is the same as metta. But I don't actually want them to say that on my tombstone. <laughs> I could just say it up to the very last minute. And uh, actually, that's another whole story, but some, do you know who it was? It was a woman who died, a a Zen teacher who died in the last decade, who said, is said to have said in her last utterance, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints. Do you know who it was? Joko Beck, maybe? Maybe it was Joko Beck. Somebody said, thank you very much, I have no complaints. And I thought that would be a very nice thing to say. as, it, But then I think it would be a very nice thing to be able to say on any day before I get there. So uh, I, what I asked Sharon to do yesterday, I said, well, I've already prepared a whole Dharma talk, but I want you to come. I want you to sit up in front. I want people to see who you are and he, I hear how you sound. And, and you can give the instructions, I said. Like big that you can. I am delighted that you're going to give the instructions. And the thing about instructions is, we say the same thing every week in a different form, so it sounds like it's new. Essentially, pay attention, relax, and don't fall asleep. Stay awake and notice what's happening. And then we sit, but we disguise it with different words. And before we do that, we were just starting. Before you came. We were having the people who were new today to stand up when we got two people to say what their name. This is Judy. And then Judy said, I came with three other people. We are Musar practitioners. And Musar, you probably know, is a a particular um, tradition within Judaism of doing a daily meditation on uh, your perfection of the virtues of the heart. Was I honest today? Was I straightforward? Was I diligent? Was I grateful? Was I generous? Or was I honest in everything that I did and said? So it isn't the whole of the religion, but it's a particular contemplative tradition within Judaism. And more and more people are becoming interested in it as a viable and very effective everyday practice. I was saying it was, um, it reminded me of the Buddha having been said to have perfected the perfections in the lifetimes before his enlightenment as the Buddha. And I think everybody understands you have to get the morality part down before you can effectively. So after Judy had said, there were several more people who said they were new for the first time today. What's your name? Carol. Carol, welcome. Mill Valley, welcome. Julia. Chris, welcome, Chris. Terry. Terry. 
Tim. Oh, <laughs> I know, Bob. How nice to see you. <laughs> I'm glad to see you. Um, Barbara's been coming for a few weeks. This is uh, Bob and Barbara Scavulo that I, I that are longtime friends of mine. Uh, Maria Monroe has come back today, which means her hip is all cured and she's better. Are you better? Better. Uh, who else did it, was I rejoicing about seeing again? Melanie from Tucson. Gail from Albany. Lynn from Lafayette. And from Michigan. Michigan. Good. <laughs> I'm very happy to notice that we have gotten on the map. People come out here and it's become one of the things like the Golden Gate Bridge and Koi Tower. I'm really happy that you came. I'm really... Oh, it was the um, the governor of Michigan who spoke in the response to the State of the Union speech last night. She is so well-spoken. Very, very good. And my college roommate lives in Grand Rapids, and we visit occasionally. Who else? Yeah. Jill from Mill Valley, who I also met at Rancho La Puerta. Heather is here. Heather works for Spirit Rock as, what's your title, Heather? You're the program coordinator. She's also a good friend of mine, and I've worked together with her on some, um, uh, what do you call those, video classes. Uh, that's what she, one of the things that she does at Spirit Rock. Who else could we possibly make feel more at home? The sun's in your eyes. I'm sorry about that. Is this your first time here? Well, welcome. What's your name? Well, I'm happy that you're here. Deborah, come and sit not in the sun in your eyes. There's a seat right here, right in front of Bob and Barbara. <laughs> the sun will move. <coughs> it will pass if you stay there. It will pass. <laughs> which is somewhat, which is part of the talk I want to give today. But it will pass. When I went on my first retreats, it seemed to me that every time I went to see the teacher for a one-on-one -on -one talk about what was happening with me in my attempts at practicing mindfulness meditation, if I said something like, you know, I have a terrible headache and I don't know what's going on here and I'm so unhappy about having come, he'd say, it will pass. And then I'd come back two days later and I'd say, you know... I, you know, all of a sudden my body got more comfortable and I'm sleeping better and I'm adjusting and I'm beginning to be able to pay attention and I'm really beginning to feel enthusiastic. I'm delighted. And he said, it will pass. <laughs> so, so, and it turned out, and I don't want to laugh about that too much. I did that for comic effect. But when the Buddha was dying in his very last teaching, which is called the Paranibbana Sutta, he said as his one main thing, like I don't, he didn't say, by the way, this is the one main thing, but its placement at the very end sounds like he's saying, above all else, remember, transient are all conditioned things, which means 
it will pass. I think he meant to say, it will pass. And that's what you're supposed to remember. And the various ways in which it impacts a life, if you know it, are in some way fundamental to the whole teaching of the understanding of overcoming suffering, letting go of suffering, actually. So we're going to talk about that today. But now, <laughs> there you go. Uh, am I on? I'm You're on. No, but am I amplified? I'm yes. Am I? Really? What's that? Yeah, why don't we do a sound check of some kind? I don't feel like I'm being amplified. I am. Okay, now it's... Okay? Sound okay? So, hi there. How long do you usually sit for? I don't know anything. 25 minutes or so. Oh, we sit, we sit for about 25 minutes after you finish saying whatever you're saying. Okay. You can sit longer, you can talk long, talk shorter. And at the end... I didn't realize I was giving a talk. But. No, you're not giving a talk, you're giving an instruction. I'm giving an instruction, okay. So, besides, could you not wake up at 3.30 in the morning blindfolded and give a talk? I could, and yeah, I may, okay. actually. <laughs> um. and, but when you end the talk, we don't do bang. We say, and if you want, I'll say it. We say now we're going to mention the names of people on our mind that we're thinking about into the communal space. And you want to say that? And people who people who just got some fantastic news and people who are just got some really dire news and people who are, for one reason or another, coming up in our minds as we're sitting quietly. So we all share them as a community. Okay, so how about if I say something that indicates it's time for that, and then you can All right. <laughs> introduce that. But before I begin, I'm first taking a moment and remembering that the last time I was at a Wednesday morning class, it was in the, like those old trailers. Oh, yeah. So it was, and how many of you ever sat in those? Leslie, who was sweet enough to drive me here, we were, we were remembering like, uh, by the end, when they had plastic bags holding up the ceiling, you know, so that they didn't fall down on you as they degenerated through the years. And and, uh, and still, I have kind of a fondness for the memory because I had so many great experiences in that space. And and now there's this, you know, which is like a whole other space. Uh, and it's so beautiful. So I was just taking a moment to appreciate it. And then I thought I'd tell you what I thought I wanted on my tombstone. Oh. <coughs> Which, um, I'm going to drag you in to tell a story in a second about it, but <laughs> what I wanted on my tombstone, as of now, uh, is, is the phrase, some things just hurt. Because I, uh, I'm saying that, countering the idea that it's only because you're resistant that something hurts, or it's only your attitude that makes something hurt, because I believe some things just hurt. And what we do in our work is, is we look for what we might call extra suffering. You know, and being able to relinquish that and, you know, not project into the future and not feel so isolated and all of that doesn't mean that the original experience becomes delightful. And the story I tell, but you can tell much better, uh, about that has to do with your granddaughter, 
honor and gefilte fish. <laughs> so I'm embarrassed to tell one of your stories in front of you. So why don't you tell the story? <laughs> okay, I do happen to remember that story. It's an old story. Honor's 20 years old. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but it is, again, the... Uh, a playful and delightful way to talk about what's the gist of what we're teaching. I'll tell you the story, and then I'll tell you why starting from some things just heard is where I had planned to start anyway, but I'll tell you Honor's story. <coughs> so it has to be when she was seven or eight, uh, old enough to have this cognition, but not grown up, and it was preparation for the Passover Seder meal, which the whole family comes together. Usually, if you're fortunate, your extended family has generations in it. And as everybody is assembling, and I'm getting it's in my home, and I am getting ready for everybody to come, and as part of the preparation, I am taking the gefilte fish, which are really, it, it upgrades them to call them canel. They're not actually canel. Canel is a fancy name for a French uh, fish dumpling. And canel are, are light and fluffy. And gefilte fish, I used to think, I still think, it has a sort of a, like a, it's heavy, gefilte fish. It is dense and heavy. It's made out of ground-up fish, which the fish merchant will grind up three kinds of fish for you, with carrots and a green, an onion, if you're you have a good relationship with her or him, <laughs> and you take that home and you put uh, uh, matzo flour and uh, egg in it, and it really comes out heavy. And you cook them, you poach them, and then you cool them, and then you put them on a plate to give out to people. And Honor told him, and her mother told me this story. Her mother said. Uh, Honor said to me, Honor had prepared the plate as I had asked her to and put it out. And she said, Honor told me, Bubby said for me to put the gefilte fish on the plate and to put the dab of a teaspoonful of horseradish on the top of each one, which people classically do, purple horseradish because it's mixed with beet juice. And she said, I did it, she said. But that's when I really learned that you can really take a terrible thing and make it worse. <laughs> so that, that's a really good story. <laughs> and, <laughs> and some things... I think about that every time I see people messing up a, a relationship. You've got a relationship and then on, it's hard enough to have a relationship that's fairly decent with somebody. <laughs> to fight and make it worse. It, what are we doing? Here we are, people living on a planet that's melting. <coughs> and we're taking time to shoot each other and hate each other and kill each other and not like each other. It's bizarre. How to not get distracted Really, we could make things worse or we could not. And this is how to not. To train your mind so that it can see. Ah, I have to say this is a little bit 
Maybe, but this is perfect because it uses the word worse in it. You can take a really terrible thing, make it worse. My friend Tony Bernhardt, who comes to teach here with me from time to time, and who, or for me when I'm not here, says that he teaches the Four Noble Truths to inmates at Folsom Prison that he's been working with for a long time. The Four Noble Truths, of course, are the ones about life being a challenge for everyone, that the habits of the mind can make it complicated, that uh, that there is a certain freedom of mind from uh, that's available if we don't complicate, and you can train yourself to have that. But he says, I teach it in Folsom, and the men are limited in there, and I can't mention the Buddha because it's a, a religious thing, and Folsom is a state um, institution, so you can't bring religion there. So he says, I have to talk it in a vocabulary that they'll get it. So I teach the Four Noble Truths this way. I say, there are four things that really you have to know. Shit happens. We make it worse. We don't have to. Here's how. (laughs) Didn't you ever hear that from Tony? That's so good. Isn't that good? Shit happens. We make it worse. We don't have to. Here's how. He was here a few weeks ago, and he said there's really only one noble truth, and it's called don't make it worse. Uh-huh. That's All it. right. Don't I like make that. it worse. So to have a mind trained so that you don't make it worse, um, that's it. Don't make it worse. And that's why. All right. That's why we're training the mind. All right. Go. <laughs> I want to say I really appreciate your telling that story. I heard it from you, of course, and then I pretty quickly... Uh, went to Ireland where I told the story, but I really had to annotate it. You know, this is gefilte fish, <laughs> and this is its consistency, but I didn't ever really know how it was made so. <laughs> uh, until this moment in time. <laughs> okay, so one of the ways we can define mindfulness uh, in the light of this conversation is a quality of awareness where we look for the add-ons. Right? We have an experience, maybe it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, whatever it is. We feel a sensation in our body or we hear a sound. And then often, very quickly, through the force of just habit, we add something onto it. If it's a painful feeling in our body or it's heartache or disappointment, a very common thing would be to add some projection, like what's it going to feel like in an hour? What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? So we've, in effect, taken the present moment's worth of discomfort and added all that anticipation, making it worse. Um, and so we're becoming aware enough so that we can see the add-ons more quickly and learn to gently let go of them and return to our original experience, which means we have the chance to see that original experience much more clearly because it doesn't have all this stuff. The word in uh, Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is papancha. It means proliferation. Uh, one of my the translator actually uh, for Upandita Saira once called it the imperialistic tendency of mind where something happens and the whole world is taken over. And I usually use this example. I was teaching with my friend, our colleague, Joseph Goldstein, somewhere. And Joseph and I were sitting in 
the kitchen of this place having a cup of tea. And someone came into the kitchen in some distress and said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, I felt all this tension in my jaw and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people, and it's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? It was really interesting for me, like watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Joseph said something like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's already painful to feel the tension in your jaw, but now you've added, and I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. You know, so these things will arise. It's just the force of habit. And, and, you know, you don't have to blame yourself for that. But that's part of what we're learning to let go of, rather than get all entangled in those add-ons. Okay, so we pay attention to the best of our ability. We see what's arising. We see the, maybe the launch of, you know, some tremendous judgment or interpretation about it, we more or less say, not right now. And go back to the original experience as best we can. Very commonly, how many of you would call yourself new to meditation practice? Okay, so very commonly, the foundational exercise is choosing an object of awareness, like the feeling, the sensation of the breath, so it doesn't have to be that. Resting your attention on that object. And when you find your attention is just flown away, that's sort of the beginning exercise in gently letting go and coming back and letting go and coming back. If you have to do that a billion times, it's okay. It's not a sign that you're failing. That's actually the training. It's what one of my teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. We're practicing letting go. We're practicing coming back. Now, it doesn't have to be the feeling of the breath. Uh, the breath is often chosen, if it works for you, as that kind of object. Um, because as one of my other teachers said, it's very portable. You know, if you practice formally, and let's say 15 minutes a day, and you use the breath as the vehicle for coming back to the moment, and back to yourself. Then you're at work or you're commuting or whatever. And things are really harried and you're feeling all this pressure and you're getting anxious. You can use the breath. And it's very private. No one has to know you're using it, right? To kind of center. So we start with an object like the feeling of the breath. If you have a physical issue or an emotional issue around breathing and it's like some kind of struggle, just listen to sound. Something else that's very near at hand. Right, but let's say it's the breath. You rest your attention on the feeling of the breath. Sometimes people think that if they get like a stranglehold on that object, their minds won't wander and they'll actually wander more. So we rest our attention. Your mind will wander. Don't freak out about that. You know, you can understand that's natural. You realize you're somewhere else, come back. Now in the course of that time, 
it may be something arises very predominantly. Physical sensation, emotional state. Not like a little dwippy thing, you know, that you can let go of and come back, but something really comes up with a bang. Spend a few moments just recognizing, oh, this is what's happening right now. There's anger, there's joy, there's sadness, whatever it is. Look for those add-ons that will likely either creep in or come very strongly. See if you can let go of those. And just come back to that recognition. Oh, this is what's happening right now. And then come back to the breath. If you feel overwhelmed, there's too much going on, you don't know what to be with, you're breathing, you're doing okay. Right? Just settle your attention more on that on that feeling. Does that make sense? Is it? instruction. Okay, let's sit together. See if you can sit comfortably with your back straight, but without being strained or overarched. You can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And if you do get really sleepy, you can just open your eyes and continue on. like, you can start just by listening to sound, the sound of my voice or other sounds. It's a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like go fingers, to the world of direct sensation, picking up, pulsing, throbbing, warmth, coolness, whatever it is. You don't have to be naming these things, just feel them. On that same level, see if you can bring your attention to the feeling of the breath, picking up the sensations of the breath. This is just the normal, natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. Wherever you feel it most strongly, maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. Find that place, bring your attention there, and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. If you like, you can use a quiet mental notation like in, out, 
or rising, falling to help support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet. Your attention is really going to feeling the breath, one breath at a time. Images or sounds or sensations or emotions arise, but they're not very strong. Just let them flow on by. You're breathing. It's just one breath. If something comes up and it is strong and it pulls your attention, spend a few moments recognizing this is what's happening right now. See if you can let go, bring your attention back to the breath. And for all those perhaps many times when you're just gone, you wake up having been lost in thought or you literally fell asleep, it's okay. That's another really priceless moment to practice letting go and beginning again. Just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath.
normally what's been what's become our habit really out of our uh, communal recognition that as we sit quietly um, in between the focused attention to the moment when we can manage to do that what seems to also come to mind are um, people that we are having particularly close in our hearts and minds at this moment sometimes because something wonderful is happening with them and sometimes because something difficult is happening with them that it's um, valuable to have a communal space to speak out that person's name. I promised um, Jeff Hugo, who's here every week usually and who can't be here today, that I would mention the name of his friend Don Dostal. Um, He can't be here today because he's at Don Dostal's funeral this morning. And what he told about was that they, they were fast friends uh, although they grew up in entirely different styles of understanding the world and politics and became, in the end, fast friends. And now Don Dostal is suddenly gone. And he hoped that if he wasn't here, I would say his name. And you just know it. Who are you thinking about this morning?
I assume it's your experience as it always is mine that when I hear the names of different people and I don't know what's going on with them I know that something's happening with them and when I hear I hear any name I often think oh I know somebody by that name and I know somebody by that name and that name and that name and sometimes people say a lot about what's happening with that person sometimes they're a person who's a public person and we all know a lot about them but what we know really in general is that everybody's thinking about everybody with sincerity and with really um, a hope for them if they're in some difficult place that their difficulty will be eased or at least supported or held and accompanied. And if they're in some place of um, joy at this moment, that their joy sustain itself as long as it can and that it continue. Sometimes I think it's the right pause at the right time in our sitting to remind all of us that we are sitting really on behalf of all the inhabitants in our minds and through them really all every, all the inhabitants in the world. It's a moment of really sensing one way or another human ability to care. May all beings be cared for. Thank you for uh, Sonia. Thank you for doing the instructions. And one of the things that I was going to say this morning, when I prepare myself, you know, I've always got something, a bunch of things I need to say or I want to say. <coughs> and then I think to myself, oh, I have to say something before that. So I, I put something before that. Then I think, oh, on my way over, something happened. I have to put that before that. Okay. And then I, uh, uh, I said to Sharon, okay, how about you do the instructions? So she did the instructions, which I really, how many times have I heard instructions in my life? But I'm sitting quietly, and all of a sudden I'm listening to her voice, which of course I love, and I'm... Uh, really primed to recognize. I could hear that voice without knowing it was Sharon and know it was Sharon. And as she said the instructions, she said one line that I thought, oh no, now I have to start with that because <laughs> I learned from that. Because really what I want to say, now I have to tell you, and I don't have to, I'm deciding to tell you another story <laughs> even before that so, because it just came out up in my mind as I said that. Many years ago, uh, my good friend, and I'm honored to say, well, I'm honored to say that he was my good friend and my teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, now of blessed memory, came to spend a day or two at my house. He was teaching in the area. And he'd been here, well, maybe a day, a day and a half. And I was putting some food out on the table for lunch and, he said, I notice um, 
that uh, I noticed that you don't drink any milk. Why is that? And I thought, that's a strange thing to notice about somebody. If I drank only chocolate milk, or if I drank chocolate milk every half hour, or if there was something really stand out about a thing, it's not that you drink, but you didn't drink milk. So I, I, I said, no, as a matter of fact, I don't drink milk. I have a lactose uh, intolerance. But I said, uh, why did you ask? And he said, well, I noticed it about you, and you can learn something from everybody. So he said it in Yiddish, but, you know, it stayed in my mind. You can learn something from everybody. In Yiddish it comes out, So I was listening to Sharon give the instructions, and she said, among other things, if you fall asleep, don't worry about it. You just wake up, you were tired. And I thought to myself, that's such a sweet thing to say. You know, I'm sure I've said it, but hearing it from her, it was such a sweet thing to say because the instruction was, relax, you're doing the best you can. And the understanding under that is everybody is doing the best they can, really. And really profoundly, I think that uh, the wisdom that allows us to live in a world with people who we disagree with, who we find disagreeable, who, uh, um, when we're in touch with them, or we hear about them, or we see them, or we learn what they're doing or saying, ire comes up in us, and distress comes up in us, and anger, and sometimes uh, really um, hurtful thoughts arise in us. It's because we've forgotten that everybody's doing... It's confusing to say the best they can, but everybody's doing the only thing that they can, really. Everybody in this moment is showing up as the culmination of all of their karmic moments from the beginning of everything. Really, karma means there is action, and our karma or is how we show up at any moment. If when I'm and the the way of saying, well, you know, it's your karma. There's a certain truth to it. If I'm really nice to a lot of people and everybody thinks Sylvia's so sweet and lovely, when I'm old, I'll have friends. And if I'm not nice to everybody, I won't have friends when I'm old. That's really the way karma works. And everybody is showing up. And if I'm nice, it's because my parents were probably nice. And my genes are more or less relaxed. And my parents' genes were not high-strung. Nobody does anything really by themselves. We do it in concert with the whole entire of creation. And everything we do affects the whole entire of creation forever and ever. So we think, whoa. It means he can't... I I remember thinking that for the first time. (gasps) Everything I do matters. I won't do anything. But that matters too. So... So what I was thinking, not only is it a very sweet kind of a, it's a lovely a lovely instruction for when you're sitting. Of course you couldn't do different. And anyway, who says taking a five-minute nap isn't better? Or a two-minute nap? Or resting your mind when it's tired? If you go for a run cross-country, when you get tired, you walk. If you really get tired, you sit down for five minutes and you get up and continue. If you're trying to pay attention in a new way, and the mind gets tired and takes a little nap, 
what's the problem? What you can see in that same little thing, say, well, I'm making such a big thing out of a little thing. But it is a big thing because it's a really a truth about that, noticing the habits of one's own mind and which habits are really helpful habits, wholesome habits. Like, why would you want to say a not nice thing to yourself fully? I fall asleep again, I'll never be a good meditator. Why would you want to do a thing like that? It can't be helpful. It could only be demoralizing. If somebody behind you says, you know, you fell asleep for a few minutes, you'll never be a good meditator, that would be a terrible thing. And it's not to beat yourself up for having terrible habits either, because the habits came from somebody. But to say, whoa, look at that habit I have. I wonder how else it's impacting my mind. I'll be on the lookout for that. Where now we get up to what I came and left my house this morning thinking... I'm going to give a talk this morning. I am giving the same talk called Don't Get Distracted. Don't get distracted because then you forget what's really important and what's really true. Don't get distracted because you forget the line in the Metta Sutta when we study it together that say, who likes what line? And everybody picks a line that they like. And more people than any other people say they like the line that says, uh, cherishing all living beings. That's what we should do. Cherish all living beings. If we did that, cherished all living beings, we'd have a totally loving heart. We'd have no enmity in our mind. The, 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 the first line of the original chant, that I, the original um, words that I used to practice loving kindness were, may I be free of enmity and danger. And that becomes so important to me. I've been telling people for the last year or more, the, the, the goal of my watching the habits of my mind, whether I'm sitting on a pillow or driving my car or in a conversation or anything, is to notice when enmity arises in my mind. That actually it has to do with what I said before about mindfulness and loving kindness being the really the same part of each other. I, that I say it's a metta is a mindfulness practice. I am mindfulness moment to moment. I hope of the presence or absence of enmity in my mind, and all of a sudden my mind say, "Wait a minute! You got frightened, sweetheart. What's happening?" Let's stop just that. Take a deep breath. You'll be all right. I really think that uh, the promise of uh, freedom from angst in the mind, freedom from the need to have it different, which is what keeps us going, the, the habit that we could make it different, we could make it the way we like it all the time, which we can't. And that knowledge that we can't, it is what comes up. This morning, I left thinking, okay, we're going to give a talk. We're going to start with Jeff Eugle said, talk about Don Dostal. So I'm going to start there. But then as I was coming here on my way, I was at the place in the, um, where the Miracle Mile meets the Francis Drake Boulevard at the, uh, and turns sharply into San Anselmo and then Fairfax. And I did a cars all around, so it's a tricky turn, especially if you're going to make an acute turn and then come up the back road. So everybody's there packed in, 
And all of a sudden, there's the sound of a paramedic ambulance behind me. And uh, so it's got a, a distinctive sound and an urgency. And I look in my rearview mirror, and I see flashing red lights and the sound. And it's coming into what's like a solid block of cars. So I carefully edge my car nearer to the middle, uh, the divider. And, the, and I see the, the cars over there are pushing the other way to make room for the ambulance to get through. There's really no way to move. And the ambulance driver rides through it carefully and then goes on into San Anselmo. And I thought what I pretty much always think when a paramedic ambulance goes by, I think, you know, first of all, I, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, may they get there, may it work out okay. But then I think to myself, somebody is not having a good day. Somebody, if the if the paramedics are coming with urgency, then someone who didn't know about it a half hour ago, because if they'd known about it and it wasn't urgent, you would have gone to a doctor or called in, called somebody. Paramedic, that means you've called 911, something is urgent, and they didn't know it before. And I was thinking about you never know, you never know. I, I think about it when there, there are, I come around a corner and I've been thinking annoyed thoughts because the traffic is so crowded and I think about how many people are crowding up the, you know, one person in a car. Look at that. They should carpool. It's ridiculous. It's such a waste of energy. I myself thinking that thought, I'm one person in a car. <laughs> it, it's such an ignoble thought, so unwise. Oh, I'm going to be late. They're going to be waiting. Maybe I should text them while texting while driving is not good. Don't text. And then you come around the corner and you see that the traffic is bunched up because an, an, a, a, a motorcycle is over and paramedics are there and ambulances are there. And I feel terrible when I've done that. My mind does it before I think about it. That's why I'm working on thinking that somebody's having a really hard day. Let's just move over the car. I, have, I think of myself as, when I explain my practice to people, I talk about it as being alert to habituating my mind to a response of kindness, because that's what I'd like to do, that it doesn't always automatically go there. Ah, oh, I'm annoyed, but wait a minute. Now, let's just, first of all, this is the way it is. It's not changing because I'm annoyed. That this is the way it is, and somebody is having a bad day. And may they be okay. Because the really the redemptive mo moment is to bless. The redemptive move is to wish people well. The, uh, the, uh, the, the opposite, the antithesis of enmity in the mind is blessing in the mind. Really, from the very first moment of learning about uh, loving-kindness practice, I realize this is blessing practice. May you be well, and may you be well, and may I be well. So Jeff called yesterday to say that he wasn't going to be in here. And you probably recognize Jeff. He usually sits right over there. He's retired um, from the Teamsters Union. And uh, so he can come to class more. But while he was still driving a year or so ago, he used to listen to Dharma tapes. Uh, doing long, He was a long-distance driver for the Teamsters. And uh, Don, Don Dostal, whose funeral was this morning, 
was also in the Teamsters Union. And he said, uh, Don Dossel and I were very close friends, even in spite of the fact that he was a uh, Navy pilot bombing Vietnam while I was marching as a end the war resistor about Vietnam. And we met, and at some point later on, said by the time I met him, he had become a pacifist. Was We were very good friends. And then he said, you know, uh, I really, uh, the result of all my practice and, I, and all my dharma, and I really know it, that things change and people die and there is loss. This, sweetheart, is what you were saying before about some things just hurt. There is loss, and he said, I know that. Everything that arises passes away. Transient are all conditioned things. He said, I really know that, but I feel terrible. I really feel terrible. I feel so sad. And it's really a very important thing to know, uh, and that some things just hurt. It doesn't mean that we can't deal with hurt. One of the amazing things about human beings is for the most part, we can suffer really terrible losses and terrible bereavements. And that after a period of time, we feel ready to be involved in a life again. Our body reconst- and our hearts and our souls reconstruct themselves some way. And we can go on. Uh, the... Um, One of my friends is a man about my age whose uh, uh, son died nine years ago. It's just now the ninth anniversary of his death um, of a sudden aneurysm, a brain aneurysm, it happens. And uh, at one point, it came up... uh, after during this time, how are you? And he said, it never goes away. It never goes away. There are surely, I won't ask you to say it's you, there's surely people here who have had losses that don't go away. They're there. They're always a minute away. You know, when I think about them to myself, when my whole family is together, for some family event, uh, uh, a Passover Seder, a Thanksgiving meal, and everybody is there. And uh, one of my sons had cancer 20 years ago, 25 years ago now. And it was a terrible cancer, and he had radical treatment for it, but he got better. And he's, healed, and he's, he's fine. He's well. Uh, bald from the treatment, but well. And every time we're in a whole family together around a big table, and I look around, maybe not every time, maybe I got used to him being there now, but for many, many years, I thought this would not look right if he wasn't here. So even if it didn't happen, it could have happened. And then you remember all the time. And the point of that remembering is not to grieve yourself again, but to remind yourself that there are some things that are important and not to be distracted by what isn't. And loving, and not having enmity, 
in your mind, having blessing in your mind, makes you better and it makes the world better. That's the whole thing. We say, may, all, my, my, may my practice be for the benefit of all beings. It's not that I personally have to go and meet every being in the world and bless it. But it means, may, may I not have anything that stands between myself and wishing well. It would be the great liberation for me. And we lament loss. The other day I was talking to one of my friends, could have been somebody who was more or less a contemporary, uh, who was mentioning something that she used to do and enjoy. Maybe we were talking about bicycling. And I said, well, we stopped bicycling a few years ago um, because, okay, up in Sonoma County where I used to live, the roads are okay, but here they're, it's perilous to bicycle at Marin's. I said, we gave that up a few years ago. I miss it. And she said, yes, it was such and such that she couldn't do any more, uh, whatever it was, some athletic thing. So I feel bad about that also. So I said, I think we should, I should write a book for old people called, um, and here's another thing that I can't do anymore. <laughs> because the list of that, how many people can resonate to that particular <laughs> So uh, I brought a poem by Billy Collins. For many years, I carried around a Billy Collins poem with me. Who remembers my reading? Another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. You remember me that it's a it's a really wonderful Billy Collins poem, and it makes the point. I won't read it because I have a better, newer Billy Collins. It makes the point of the story of the poem <clears throat> is uh, my neighbors are out, their dog is barking excessive, obsessively, and I'm I'm distraught about it. They say he, they, they switch him on when they go out. <laughs> He's barking, 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 and he said. So I turn on Beethoven's Ninth. It's very loud. It's got a chorus and a fourth movement. I turn on Beethoven's Ninth as loud as I can, but I can still hear him barking in the background, barking, barking. And then at the end, after it's over, I hear him barking, barking. And he said, but now, he said, I imagine him sitting in the oboe section, <laughs> looking at the conductor, barking his part of the uh, famous dog-barking solo that Beethoven included as a coda onto that symphony which established him as the innovative genius that he is. I, I love that poem because it says, see, you know, things get terrible or seem terrible to you. I can't say, let's think something more. Let's think something bigger. The, my, uh, my friend and teacher, Sharon Salzberg, wrote a book called A Heart as, My, as Wide as the World. Let's make the mind that all wide. Everything is in it terrible things and annoying things and people we love and baby elephants and just everything in the whole world is there. Creation is amazing, so I don't mind my annoying neighbor or my this or my traffic or whatever. It's very small fry in the whole thing. 
By the way, if you want to see that poem, you look up Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House by Billy Collins. This is a new Billy Collins that I just read. It, well, I'll tell it to you. It doesn't need an introduction. Oh, it doesn't need... <laughs> Something else just popped into my mind. Uh... 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago, sometime when I had just begun my retreat practice, going on retreat, and I was doing some really periods of intensive retreat at uh, Barry Center, and uh, my teacher at that point was Joseph Goldstein, and uh, I really, really was beginning to see, beginning to be able to settle my mind enough to be able to see that the things that I was hearing about, that everything is impermanent, that uh, that uh, really insisting that in any way that things not be always in a state of change was uh, uh, causes tension in the mind, tension that we call suffering, and that actually everything is related to everything. Things happen because other things happened and cause other things to happen in every direction. Uh, I was particularly aware of the passage of everything. This happens, and it's not happening. And I really down to the level of going to eat and feel, oh, I have a big appetite, that's great, because the food looks wonderful. Now I'm eating, mmm, this is good, mmm, this is really good, really good. Uh, now I don't have another appetite. I, the appetite's all gone. I don't feel like eating anymore. And I took too much. Now I'm embarrassed that people will see that I'm not finished my plate and I'm putting it into the compost. And they'll think about how thoughtless I was when I took too much or whatever. Big story about that. But I had an appetite till I didn't. I'll tell you later about having seen the, uh, for the second time, the film, the Lehman trilogy. How many people saw it? It is the best theater I've ever seen. It is amazing. And there's a voice, and the Lehman trilogy has to do with Lehman Brothers stocks. And there's a, a voiceover at some point about remarking on the Lehman Brothers and how they started with nothing as immigrants from uh, Bavaria and became a monumental uh, uh, part of the stock exchange and went bankrupt in 2008, declared bankruptcy in 2008. And a voice, a voiceover at some point says, the Lehman Brothers were invincible until they weren't. You know, and it just stayed in my mind as I heard it. I hurry up, wrote that down on my program because I wanted to be able... Everything... Did you, how many people know the poem Ozymandias? Anybody studied that in high school? Yeah, everybody studied. Not everybody. Ozymandias is uh, a poem by Shelley about coming on a coming in a place in the desert where there's nothing far and wide. It said, but ruins and bottoms of old statues, and an inscription that's on the bottom of an old statue. And the inscriptions, the inscriptions certainly referring to uh, Ozymandias, the king of this kingdom that's no longer there. It says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Look what I have. 
And then the end, I'd forgotten the last line. Do you know the last line, Bob? Something about, I look around and there's nothing sand everywhere. But I think about that all the time, about whatever it is, it doesn't last. And how, in fact, freeing that was. When I was first beginning my practice, I thought, and I began to see, oh, if in the moment that I thought, if they don't ring that bell soon, I'm going to explode, I would think to myself, they will. It's, it's, they can't, it can't be forever. And actually, the beginning of knowing, your mouth is open and the dentist is doing way too much excavating in there, too long with too much apparatus in your mouth. You think about an hour from now, I'm going to be in Starbucks having a coffee, which you know really is calling on the wisdom that it's not going to last. You can do it. Even in the worst bereavement, it doesn't feel like you'll ever get over it. But the agony of that moment won't last. It'll be different in a long time. So I was beginning to have inklings of impermanence. I went to see Joseph for an interview, a one-on-one talk in his room, and I said, you know, uh, I was in a very weepy stage. I said, you know, I look outside, see outside, see this beautiful bud. It's just turning into a rose. It looks so beautiful right now. It's so beautiful. And three days from now, it's going to be all brown around the edges. It's going to be wilting and it'll be all gone, and it's the same with everything. All beauty is all gone, and it's disappearing just as it arises. I'm a little dramatic. Uh, <laughs> I said, but everything is is dying as it's just starting. It's so sad. And he said, nah, it's not sad, Sylvia. It's just true. It's all right, he's my teacher, so I'm not going to say anything. Go out, thank you very much. <laughs> I go out, thank you very much, and I thought to myself, well, it is true. Might not be sad, but it's poignant. It is poignant. I was thinking at some point, I'm going to call this talk today. It is all poignant. Look what we're doing to each other. We're killing each other. We're killing the planet. And we don't stop. It's terribly poignant. Look what we're doing. So, it is poignant. This is called Downpour by Billy Collins. Last night, we ended up on the couch trying to remember all of the friends who had died so far. And this morning, I wrote them down in alphabetical order on the flip side of a shopping list you had left on the kitchen table. So many of them had been swept away as if by a hand from the sky. It was good to recall them, I was thinking, under the cold lights of a supermarket, as I guided a cart with a wobbly wheel up and down the long, strident aisles. I was on the lookout for blueberries, English muffins, linguine, heavy cream, light bulbs, apples, Canadian bacon, and whatever else was on the list, which I managed to keep grocery side up until I had passed through the electric doors, where I stopped to realize, as I turned the list over, that I had forgotten Terry O'Shea, as well as the bananas and the bread. (laughs) It was pouring by then, spilling, as they say in Ireland, people splashing across the lot to their cars. And that is when I set out, walking slowly and precisely, a soaking wet man 
bearing bags of groceries, walking as if in a procession honoring the dead. I felt I owed this to Terry, who was such a strong painter, for almost forgetting him, and to all the others who had formed a circle around him on the screen in my head. I was walking more slowly now, in the presence of the compassion the dead were extending to a comrade. Plus, I was in no hurry to return to the kitchen, where I would have to tell you all about Terry and the bananas and the bread. That's lovely, isn't it? I've, I've been carrying this around with me for a couple of weeks, waiting for the right time to read it to you. So I've replaced the Billy Collins. That's the new one. Actually, I started on the back of this poem, I started the list of all of my people who are on the other world. That, that's the uh, Yiddish expression for people who have passed so-and-so is in the other world now. He or she is in the other world. He's in the other world. And um, I'm particularly struck, with, in addition to my grandparents, my parents, of course, how many of my contemporaries have already made it into the other world. I'm really surprised when you start to write them all down. So I wanted to talk about Distracted. Don't get distracted because we might forget to cherish this day. We might accidentally harbor a resentment. And, oh, I get to show. I got. I brought my. Wait, don't no, don't look. Don't look. I brought a surprise for you, but don't look. <laughs> well, actually, it's mine. But if you love it, I'll give it to you. No, no, don't look. Don't look. Don't look. Don't look. Not yet. Not yet. I have to take it out to take it out. I have been buying these and then I go as a house guest to somebody or I want to give somebody a present and it's the best thing I have so I give it to them. Don't look. Okay. Look at them. So you know how in different countries you buy, different famous cities you buy a souvenir of the city you buy a snow globe, you shake it up you put it down and the snow goes down and then you suddenly see, oh, Eiffel Tower. You can look, take it, you can look now. Oh, Eiffel Tower. Oh, uh, Tower of London. Oh, uh, Niagara Falls. You know where they've traveled. In San Francisco, it doesn't snow, but we have fog. So this is a fog globe. Aww. And you do this. Wait, wait, wait. It makes a whole Dharma point. I carry it. I carry it with me when I go to uh, teach. You know, at um, at Garrison, I left this out for the weekend, and people came up. I said, "You can come and play with it." And people were coming up. Oh, what do you think is going to show up? Fast, fast. Golden Gate Bridge. Golden Gate Bridge. There you go. Wait, wait. Da 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 da. <laughs> It'd be funny if it was Coit Tower or something after that whole build up. Oh, no, there it is. That's fabulous. How many people here have never had one in your hand, a, a, a fog globe? So, would you like to come and get it and pass it around? It's a visual aid. Isn't that fabulous? I have an SF Giants one. 
Yeah, no, that's good too. Do you have fog or snow? Sparkles. Oh, sparkles is good. We should sell this in our <laughs> in our little store. You can get one with a Buddha in it, you know. Yeah, can you? Do we have it in our store? I, I have honestly not been in the store <laughs> in a long time, years. Well, it has more stuff. The store has branched out. Anyway, this, you can tell a lot of stories about this, because, among others. The main reason I bring it is I say that the word vipassana, which is the word we used to call mindfulness meditation because it's its actual name in Pali, but we changed it to mindfulness because vipassana is not a daily used word in the West. Uh, but the actual etymology of the word vipassana is it means seeing clearly. And the the reason that the Buddha suggested that we try to see clearly is that if we could see clearly, we would understand that our lives are a fleeting moment, that they all that they start and then they end inevitably everybody's life. That when you study um, a beginning or an introductory course about Buddhism, uh, it usually includes a story about the Buddha not having been aware as a young man in a noble family with all, uh, lots of comforts around him. Uh, that in fact life itself for most people is generally uncomfortable and always ends if with sickness, old age sickness and death, and sometimes the sickness and death become before the old age. And really what we would call uh, a moment of existential awareness that is part of everybody's upbringing. And some people notice it early. Some people, uh, I, I, I recently met I have a new friend whose mother died when she was quite young, like six, maybe four, I think six, not sure, but very young. And often people's grandparents die when they're young. You suddenly have to metabolize in your mind that sometimes there are people and they aren't there anymore. And how does your body metabolize that? And really the story of the Buddha is really the story of an existential awareness. How do people do this life essentially as a setup for, okay, here are going to be people in a life that's complicated. You get too hot, too cold, too sleepy, too tired, too hungry. But you can take care of all of those, maybe if you're fortunate, without too much trouble for the length of your natural life. But the only thing you can't take care of is you can't take care of not losing people or not losing dreams, all of a sudden say, wow, I'm too old to learn to play the trombone. I really wish I'd learned to play the trombone. Nobody feels really terrible about not having to <laughs> play the trombone. But there's always things, oh, I can't ride my bike anymore. Uh, so far I can walk up my stairs. But I think about that practically every day when I walk up my stairs. And I say, oh, did it again. So didn't even hold the handrail, stood near the handrail, but I stand near the handrail, but I don't hold it. But I am standing near as if, if I need it. That wasn't used, that didn't used to be true. And what's more, I just remember that when we bought our old house, we have a, a hundred and, the house was built in 1903. 
when we moved in, when we bought it, we bought it from some old people. I don't actually think they were as old as we are now, but anyway, <laughs> old people. And they had a not very good-looking handrail going up along the stairs, going up, because we have three flights up. And we said, this is not, you know, that we bought the house. We took out that not nice-looking, tacky handrail. Nobody needs a handrail. And some years ago, we put back a handrail, uh, because if we weren't needing it, our friends were needing it by that time. And the amazing thing to me is I remember both events like they happened quite close together doesn't seem to me like so long went by between X and Y. We took down the handrail and we put it back up. It's poignant. It's not even sad. It's, I mean, on the other side of it, it's fantastic that we made it this long to be able to put in the handrail. It could have been a shorter life. But really, we don't know. Uh, there's, a, there's a line which I don't often quote from the Buddha, in his early teachings, because I think it will turn people off to Buddhism. I'm not trying to do that. Because I think his general insight is that we could live in a contented, appreciative, curious, um, grateful mind if we trained the habits that way. So I don't say that the Buddha said anything that is dear to you causes pain. But he did say everything that's dear to you causes pain. In the early teachings, it got a little bit more um, (coughs) evolved as the teachings came along. But it's true. If you make something dear to you, somebody came to class, Monday, Wednesday morning class, this, this kind of a class, some years ago, and she had been coming to class, obviously pregnant and more pregnant and more pregnant and more pregnant for a long time. And then she wasn't in class for a while, and we all assumed that she probably had the baby. And after some months, five, six months, she came back to class with the baby, so we could hear it making little noises in the back through the class. It was really lovely. And so everybody said, you know, great things and blessings and all that. We Everybody blessed the baby. And then uh, we said, how is it? And she said, well, it's fabulous, it's wonderful, thank you very much. She said, the only thing is, nobody told me that I was mortgaging my heart for the whole rest of my life. And you, how many people think that's true? That's true. Somebody asked me to speak at their um, 70th birthday party. It was Jane Barras, who's 10 years younger than I am. Uh, James's wife, Jane, said... You're already 80. Why don't you talk at my talk about becoming 70? Because you're already 80. So I said, well, I'll, st- I'll start with uh, the main myth about passing 70 or passing 80 is that you don't worry about your adult children anymore. <laughs> How many people think that that's a myth? <laughs> you worry about them forever. You just do. And you miss them forever if something happens to them forever. It's true. Everything that is dear to you is a potential source of distress. It doesn't have to cause you pain. How many? I, <laughs> I haven't told this in such a long time. It seems, I'm just checking if it's all right. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> when I used to do more traveling and more teaching to groups that didn't know me, 
like this group knows me, more or less. Uh, and uh, maybe when I was still writing books, and the books sound sometimes wiser than I entirely am, even I write them, they're true books, but I sound good. Anyway, somebody will ask a question sometimes, like, um, how do you keep such fantastic equanimity all of the time? So I'm surprised you haven't started to laugh, because that is a ridiculous question, because I don't. I said, listen, you're just getting me on a, you're getting me on an evening when I'm composed and I'm talking to you. But there are three words that in the world, uh, two words in the world, that can disturb the whole equanimity. I said, really? What are the two words? Well, the two words come after a telephone ringing. Ring, ring. You answer the telephone. It says, hello, ma. And it doesn't sound right. How many people here know the sound of someone calling and saying, hello, ma? And it doesn't sound right. It's one of your children calling to say, this is wrong, that's wrong, that didn't work out, da-da-da. The whole life, hello, ma. And on the other side of it, I'm so happy that they have a ma that they can call when they're 60 and I'm 80. Um, It's a lucky thing. For those of you who are old and have children, we know that it is. My mother died young, not so young, but in her 20s, in her 40s, in my 20s. I was old enough. Don't get distracted. That's for me and for you, but don't get distracted. It says here, don't get distracted. I wanted to particularly use that word because I heard it in my mind. In the Lehrman Brothers, there's a, a way in which one of the brother, one of the offspring of one of the brothers, because it, co- it covers several generations of Lehmans, uh, one of the brothers explains how they got rich by not getting distracted. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing scene inv- involving card games. I, I, when I heard that about don't get distracted, my mind imme- went immediately to a conference that I went to probably 20 years ago in Seattle. It was an interfaith uh, clergy meditation conference, something like that. Because I was there, um, there were rabbis there, there were uh, Christian um, Catholics, other Christian denominations, and everybody was in their particular life doing some contemplative practice. And the the um, the way we were hoping it would work out is that people would talk about not the outside shell of what does your practice look, what does your religion look like, not I do my thing on Friday or on Saturday or on Sunday, but when your mind is most focused, what's it like for you? Uh, one of the people there was um, a Catholic priest who was the president of the international something-something of Catholic contemplatives. I don't remember his name, but I remember that he said, we have a different definition of sin. What we say, the definition of sin is distraction. 
And I've been thinking about that, about being distracted in any way, not seeing what's... It, it, not so far from what I could say. We don't talk about sin as in the Buddhist lineage, but, uh, but from not seeing what's true and what needs to be attended to. Actually, in uh, one of the definitions of sin in, um, that I have heard in Judaism is uh, uh, particularly around Yom Kippur where people talk about um, a, um, uh, what do you call it, a uh, moral inventory, moral inventory. They talk about the sin I've committed by doing this or that or the other. But the word for sin is, transla- is a translation, and not exactly, of the, of the word in archery used for missing the mark. Either hit the bullseye or you miss it. So it doesn't, it doesn't by itself mean a terrible thing. It means not being exactly where you're supposed to be, off it. And it's so easy for me to see when I was when I, when the paramedic ambulance came speeding up behind me this morning, and I thought, oh, you know, somebody is having a bad day. What that did for me, in addition to provoke me to think kind thoughts about the people around me in their car who were making such effort to squeeze their cars apart in that so that the paramedics could go through feeling disposed to bless them for being able to do that, the paramedics for going, for being able to drive so skillfully and go and treat so skillfully, and to wish for the person that was waiting for them, may they be helped by what's coming. And that before that moment where the paramedics woke me up to that moment in the truth of it, I had been thinking about probably about last night's uh, uh, State of the Union speech or the thing after it and uh, different kinds of worries or responses or reactions or something. But I was a moment of distraction. I wasn't thinking I should be careful of the people around me and take care with my car and spend this time blessing the people around me even before the paramedic moment. All the people around me who are not bumping into me anytime I'm on the highway are worthy of blessing. May all these people who are not riding into me right now and causing me to get killed here on the highway, may they all arrive safely. Imagine what a better mood I would be in if I were thinking that rather than thinking, should I mention the speech? Should I not mention the speech? What should I do? That was not in the moment. The, the paramedics of beep, beep, beep. Ah, waking up. May all people be peaceful and happy and not suffer. And I feel better when I do that. That's the whole thing. Don't get distracted. So then when I was thinking further about don't get distracted, when I saw it in the Lehman Brothers about uh, it was how to win in, in stocks, how to see what's the next thing that people are going to want. Because they're great wealth is portrayed as coming from having read the market right. They knew that people would be interested in railroads and in travel and then hotels and then in oil because you have to have lights in the hotels. And with card games, that's the card, that's the card, that's the card. They were using that to say it was the stock that they 
knew what to pick, what to pick, what to pick, until and finally the demis came around saying, well, it doesn't matter. We just have to get people to buy. Uh, it doesn't matter what they buy. It matters that they buy, which then ended in subprime mortgages and people buying with no collateral and uh, and uh, the the idea that you'll be happy if you buy this house, you don't have to pay for a year. See all the ads that say no payments due until 2021 or something. Oh, I'll have it. The whole idea of prudence. Prudence is not a word that people use anymore. <laughs> or piggy banks or prudence or layaway plans. Do you, do you remember layaway plans? I remember layaway plans where before a holiday season there'd be a sign in a store or window that says you can buy this on layaway. It means you don't take it home. You go in and say, I want that vase for Christmas present for my wife. And then every week I'm going to bring you $2 until I have paid off the vase. What a quaint idea. That, you know, in, in, in one lifetime we go from you can buy a house with nothing. And, and, the, and the, well, okay. I wanted to get up to this part. How easy it is to be seduced. Not only the people who bought subprime, but which I feel terrible about because they're people whose lives were ruined mostly. But how easy it is for me to get distracted and distracted from paying attention in the moment, distracted by something I could be mad at, like the politics, or that thing, something I could want. So speaking of what, the, like the day after Christmas, day after New Year's, because you could no longer get mail in the mail that said... Uh, buy this for a New Year's present, or buy this for your party, or buy this for a Christmas present, this, 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 present, present, present from one minute after Labor Day, buy this present, that present, the holiday season, the president, present season. It got to be New Year's. It's no longer the present season. The following day, and up to now, I didn't bring you all of the, the uh, catalogs that came, but they're all expeditions, Summer voyages, spring voyages, Smithsonian. I like the Smithsonian. Smithsonian is very good. I, so I think that I'm not going anywhere. We're old. We don't go anywhere. We have a very modest life. We go to the gym. We visit our friends. It's appropriate for old people. But I'm reading them. Like I'm going to go. And I'm reading, I'm reading walking tours in the Cotswolds. I, you know. I can't walk a mile without my back seizing up. I can't go on a walking tour in the castle. But the pictures are so good. And what's more, you can go see penguins in the South Pole. I've always wanted to see penguins. So I'm reading about that. And I said, well, this is ridiculous. Why are you reading this? You have other stuff. And you're not going. I mean, they're... Then I, and you can go anywhere. You can go to the Great Wall of China. You can go to places you wouldn't think about going. And you can go on a jet all around the world in, in uh, 17 days in a private jet. You can. So, but anything amazing, amazing, amazing. I keep on reading. Then, <laughs> and they always show pictures of people doing the, the level. They ask you the level of um, skill, that, that your level of physical ability. So that if it's like Kilimanjaro, they say you have to have certain ability. But then I'm reading along and then I think, I see people, picture over here, of, 
the ultimate trip, you know, the, the ultimate adventure trip, it's got people outside a space capsule doing repairs. I'm thinking, oh my God, they've got, you can go, you can go repair a space capsule. <laughs> then I realized that it is not, look, it's not actually that you go. You go to join fellow travelers who share a passion for the history and future of space exploration and mark the 55th anniversary of man's first spacewalk during a VIP experience at the renowned U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. So it's Huntsville, Alabama. It's not outer space. But for a moment, I thought, oh, my God, you can, can sign up for a trip. <laughs> and the thing is, I haven't thrown them out yet or recycled them or anything. I keep them around and, you know, sometimes I read them when I get into bed at night. Look where you can go. You can do this. You can see that. And I'm not going anywhere. But it's, it so tickles me. Oh, the, the, one other thing about that, because I remember it over here. The, the catalogs I didn't bring are the catalogs that come from Travel outfitters, like, what's the name of that? What's a travel outfitter? Then, who? Travel Smith and Magellan. They come regularly to my house. They just haven't come in the last two weeks. But they always have a picture on the cover that is fantastic. Some view that's wonderful, some lovely something. And you start reading and the outfit yourself with vests with 65 pockets for every possible thing that you could put. And then if you read more, the inside pages have uh, things you could buy for the troubles that would could arise like a, a silk sleeping sheet. If you're worried about there might be bed bugs, you could put the sleep, it's like a sleeping bag made out of silk that you put in the bed that you get in to protect yourself against the bed. And then the things that you can put around your, huh? Like you like that? <laughs> All kinds of pills for seasickness, air sickness, bracelets so you shouldn't get seasick, uh, earplugs for noisy venues. The various things that would make of, of a, a trip uncomfortable because please go to this place, look at all this cute clothes you could wear, and here's all these things for what might happen to you while you're there. <laughs> I thought, you know, I always think about that, but they put that in the middle. And this morning I was putting all this stuff together to come. I had some more things. That, well, we'll continue next week. I'm here next week. And I found this book. It's in French, and it's called... Um, Man, uh, Manuel de Servi on Voyage, the survival manual for being on a trip. And, it, and it's in French, but as I won't read it to you, but it, here are the, some of the things that it covers. How, how to uh, get across a river infected, infested with piranhas. <laughs> how to survive a sandstorm. How to uh, stop a train out of control. How to construct a, uh, uh, a shelter in a snowstorm. Uh, <laughs> how to escape being... <laughs> how to escape being locked in the trunk of a car. 
how to treat a scorpion bite, how to survive a volcanic eruption. <laughs> Plus, all the strategies to, to travel like a pro, uh, 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 expressions for um, expressing yourself in uh, situations of emergency, with, along with jests, um, jests that uh, would accompany what you say, like, hmm? Hmm? gestures that would accompany those phrases of urgence. So I thought, really, on the one hand, and it's all about, it's not far from the Lehman Brothers. How will we sell people stuff? What will we sell them? How will we convince them that they need this? They need this. I notice, I mean, not saying bad on people, but I meet people and they say, where are you traveling these days? So it's like, <laughs> I'm old enough so that I remember when my contemporaries uh, were dealing with, when people say, what do you do? If you didn't have like a, if you weren't like a, uh, oh, something that counted for a career, that was a bad thing. Now, if you didn't go someplace, you say, "Where did you? Where have you gone this year? Where are you planning to go?" Not planning to go any place. You know, but can I not do that? Uh, but to, but the the idea that it's it's not accidental that that particular thing of people. Um, when I think about it, oh no, it's twelve o'clock. So no, it's five. I'm going to do one thing. I met somebody in the, in the Costco the other day. Uh, who knew me. I wonder if he came today. Did you come, Saul? He said, oh, maybe I'll come on Wednesday. Uh, I met a man who recognized me, who told me what he did. He's, in the, he's a psychologist in Marin County. And he said, what are you teaching new these days? What's the main thing about what you're teaching? I said, the whole thing about what I'm teaching, the whole thing about what I'm teaching is don't get distracted. And the whole thing that I'm teaching is don't... Um, don't entertain um, enmity in your mind. Notice it, respond in a way that's appropriate, and don't keep it, don't let it come to stay. But really what I'm teaching is that things happen, and we are human beings, and we respond to them, and we like, we either, they're either pleasant or they're not pleasant. And that's fine, that continues to happen. Pleasant and unpleasant things happen. And to be able to notice this is pleasant and this is unpleasant. And to be able to notice that along with that often comes, it's very pleasant, I need more of it. And it's very unpleasant, I need to get rid of it. And to notice that in between that identification and that awareness and that impulse and doing something is a very crucial part of mental equipment. You could say, wait in between the impulse and the action. If in between the impulse and the action, we thought about it, in a tiny space, the mind can say, don't do that, do this. This is the road that leads to wholesome results, this leads to unhappiness. In the Eightfold Path, the path part called wise effort means identifying at every crossroads, which we are making all day long, Life is one long crossroads. You choose this way, it leads to suffering. And you choose this way, it leads to non-suffering. 
and to be able to have that pause. That's it. What do you want to say, sweetheart? Uh, nothing. <laughs> Thank you. I do want to say, actually, you've always been like that. Remember when we would discuss personality types and you would talk about being the greedy type, not for things, but for, like, experiences yeah. and trips? So uh, I was thinking, do I get catalogs like that? I don't think I look at them. You know, but it, it resonates with... Uh, yeah, I, but that, that's important. We tell the end of that story because that story was <clears throat> when we used to tell that story about the hypothetical experience uh, of, I, w I would tell, I would say, if I get, an, if someone calls me up, ring, 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 we're calling from the south of France, we're planning to have uh, a uh, mindfulness, give a host a mindfulness retreat in the spring of the year when the heather is in bloom, <laughs> and uh, we would uh, pay your airfare and bring you here, and we'll get 40 students, and do you want to do it? And I would, as I'm on the phone, be packing my bag. <laughs> and Sharon would be saying, south of France, so much traveling. You have to fly, then you have to get on a train, <laughs> then you have to go. And the truth is that if it was an appropriate class to teach and it was a valuable thing to do, we would both go. And it doesn't mean that she's a a lazy person that doesn't go, and it doesn't mean that I grab of every opportunity. You think it over. But her tendency is not so greedy. My tendency... <laughs> well, my tendency is diluted. It's not that it's not so greedy. <laughs> Let's be frank. You know. <laughs> I used to think that, it was, that my tendency was to be nervous about things and worry, but I've actually figured out that my real tendency is greed. And... <laughs> Uh, and I think Jack has said that about himself. He said that I never met an experience I didn't like. So that, uh, but something new. Actually, I could teach the first mindfulness course on the moon. Think of that. You know. That. But it doesn't mean you do anything. It means that you have that tendency in the mind. And this is all about just seeing how it is. And the other thing is, you have a tendency. You probably have it the whole life. It comes with the genes. You think so? I do. I mean, for those of you who don't know, maybe Sylvie can talk about this one week. Uh, in the Buddhist psychology, there are three personality in this system, there are three personality types, which don't have very nice names, but it's like the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. And they each have purified forms, so that um, the greed, uh, what we call greed, uh, transmutes to like a love of life and of experience. And the angry type... It doesn't mean you're an angry person, but the example like of the angry type would be someone who'd walk into a room and notice what they don't like. It's just where their eye goes. You know, like, I think they could have done better with that exit sign in this room, you know? And, <laughs> and they don't notice, like, it's just what your tendency is. And then the deluded type is just kind of spaced out, you know? And so they each transmute to something more positive and the the agent of that change is mindfulness so it's a great it's a great teaching it's a little bit it's very forgiving it's like instead of saying you know i'm such a wretched person i only like see 
badly designed exit signs wherever I go. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's just my type, you know? That's where I go. Anger, the anger transmutes into kind of this cutting through wisdom because anger has that um, insistence on not staying on the surface and just accepting social convention. It's like maybe everyone else in the room is studiously avoiding the hole in the rug and the angry person will say, hey, there's a hole in the rug. You know, so it, it transmutes to uh, like a, a kind of wisdom or intelligence and delusion transmutes into equanimity. It starts out, <laughs> you're kind of balanced anyway, but you're, it's because you're not noticing anything. <laughs> you're, you're just like, real, you like that foggy thing. <laughs> But as you learn to pay more attention, it, uh, you can have that kind of balance or evenness, but you are noticing things, in fact. So I think that would be a great class for you to do sometime. Yeah, what a fun thing to teach with you. Yes. You can stay case. longer. Yeah. Yeah. France. Let's call up France and see if they'll invite us. How about St. Louis? Huh? St. Louis? Do it here. <laughs> cool idea. Cool idea. See that? It's like a little hint of an idea. I said, oh, cool idea. <laughs> you get tired of flying. Okay. May all beings be peaceful and happy. May. I haven't done this in a long time. I always forget. May whatever we've said here today in the work and the thinking that we did together and our being together and sustaining each other, may that continue to enliven our lives and our thoughts and the way we are with everyone that we meet when we go out of here. And may it transmute itself through all those people to all the people that they meet. So may this be really on behalf of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be at ease.